Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Okay, this is really exciting for me because this is seemingly outside the box of conversation that I typically have. People love to talk to me about running. They want to talk about running mechanics. They want to talk about heart rate. And, uh, you know, this is a fresh opportunity for me in that lately I've been spending a lot of time, I mean, an incessant amount of time trying to figure out how to unravel the onset of fatigue as it's associated with CrossFit and then all of a sudden, out of the box comes this new sport, High Rocks. And it just made perfect sense to me to reach out to the guys over at Concept2. And I am very pleased to, to share with you that I have Greg Hammond, who is a great guy so far, I've come to find out. And he has been with the uh, Concept2 family for, what'd you say, Greg? Was like for 25 years or something like that? 23 now. Yeah. 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 So, Greg Hammond, say hello to the audience. Hello, audience. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> having me on. I'm so glad to have a chance to, to actually meet with you, I, virtually at least. I don't think I'm going to come back to Vermont. Who knows? Well, as much as, as I travel, there's probably a good chance we'll probably meet somewhere other than Vermont. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe at a High Rocks event or even a CrossFit thing. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know anymore. I, I come to learn at my old age that I'm just not in charge anymore. I just do what seems to get in front of me the most. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So I want to talk about a couple things. First of all, you're familiar with the the program that I did for CrossFit, and, and we've kind of connected softly, let's say, through Instagram. But I've been playing with your toys now for a bit. But by the way, I should tell you that I bought my first – rower concept two rower in 1989 was the first rower i bought from you guys yeah model b yeah, yeah. and we used to use it we used to use it in a circuit where the focal point of the circuit was the rower because that was the thing that separated the wheat from the chafe you got on that thing hard for a minute and then have to go and do some exercises, and it would just suck the life out of you. I had a love-hate relationship with that thing forever. I think it's been about, uh, oh, two years ago now. Hunter McIntyre said, look, dude, I want to buy you a piece of exercise equipment. So what do you want? He wanted to buy me a, an assault bike. And I said, you know, Hunter, assault bike is, I don't know, it's just kind of noisy, and I don't know if I'm going to love that thing. I said, just get me a rower. And lo and behold, one day, the rower shows up at my front door. <laughs> and uh, it turns out my wife really started to enjoy it. She, you know, we would train together and she liked using it. And, you know, it's in the secret lab. So we had it available to us to, to train on. And then one day I said, you know, I saw this Concept2 bike 
which is amazing because I have a triathlon background back in the day and um, I, cycling is a thing for me. And I knew that I could gravitate towards this thing. Then I saw the skier and I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. And I thought my wife would dig that because she doesn't like to ride a bike. And so now we got all three of the pieces in the lab and we use them pretty much daily now. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't mean to take the show from you here. I want to hear from you, but I, I wanted to give you some backdrop on this because I think it's important for the, the sake of the conversation. It's uh, the three pieces of equipment definitely complement each other extremely well. And, and when you said about, you know, back in the 80s, which is about when I first started finding out what the rotor was too, same kind of deal. It was um, at rugby practice, you either ran hills or you rode. And um, so that was the option, you know, if the weather was too bad or you just didn't want to go out and run hills. And uh, I found the same thing that you did. It's like, you know, you could be on it for an hour easy, or you could be completely done in less than a minute, all based on what you want to put in. The oh, machine. my God. So uh, coming from a cycling background, getting on the, the bike, you know, I thought, okay, I'll clip into this thing, turn on some tunes and I'll throw down, eh, it says here 20,000 meters. That doesn't seem very far. I started relating it to the distance I might travel on my bike. And I got on this thing and I was punished after about 20,000 meters. I'm going, wow, that's like 12 miles. You know, yeah. I'm used to riding like 80 miles, you know, and going out hard for 40 miles. And one day I thought, you know, what the hell? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to go 30 or 40,000 meters. I was wrecked for the rest of the day. It's um, one of the things with our bike that people don't realize and we have to explain it to them to make sure they get what, they, what they're looking for. You know, if they're used to spinning on a spin bike with a weighted wheel that is kind of assisting the pedal stroke, as opposed to ours where, you know, it's just like a real bike. If you're at the bottom of your stroke, you know, there's nothing dragging your foot through the bottom of the stroke. You do realize really quickly that it feels more like maybe mountain biking or, you know, there's just, there's, your quads get a lot of use on ours compared to say a, a normal standardized spin bike. Well, I taught spinning for years. I was actually one of the first spinning instructors in the world. Oh, wow. uh, John, Johnny G, who was the founder of spinning, is a dear friend of mine. And matter of fact, I used to do all his VO2 testing for him back in the day. But uh, I got on this thing, and I think the best way to describe it from my perspective is you get what you give. Oh, for sure. And you'll never beat it. You'll never yeah, beat it. No, you get what you get. You, you try to beat it down and it beats you right back. You know, yeah. there's no freewheeling. It's not, it's not like uh, the spinning bike where you get momentum on it and it's, you, it's, you're just chasing the wheel. Right. Glad you said that because it is tough to, um, like, we'll actually, we're the type of company, if somebody calls up and they have a long background in spinning and they think that they just want the concept to brand and they want, they think the bike will be like what they use in spin class we'll actually kind of steer them away from buying it saying, well, you got to be open to the idea. It's not going to feel like that. Um, and we've been lucky. Everybody who's got one, we've been really lucky with the bike is that people accepted it and loved it right out of the gate, which is kind of nice because we were a little bit, you know, on the fence because first everybody wanted something with arms to mimic like an air bike. And, and we didn't want to do that. And um, we said, listen, we're all mountain bikers here. There's some road bikers here. Let's make a bike as if, we were making something that we wanted to use and then the bike came from that. So we kind of made it for ourselves first, just like we did with the skier and the rower, thinking, well, that works, let's try it with the bike and it, and it seemed to be paying off, so. Oh, it was a great move. 
It was a great move because I, I'm telling you, I, I my first thought after getting a couple workouts under my belt was, this is going to make me so much stronger on my bike. Oh, I think so. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And so that's been a thing for me. But where I was heading with this is that I wrote this program for CrossFit Dark Horse. And uh, we wanted to provide some scientific background to the training. So most CrossFitters don't look at heart rate. And I wanted to try and encourage them to see the value in tracking heart rate because heart rate represents what it costs you to do what you do. And the work you put out is the yield. So it's like what you're buying and what you're getting for what you paid for. And I felt like that was kind of left aside. Most people are just more looking at the amount of force they can create, really kind of discounting cost, which is why most often you see in CrossFit, you see these guys laying around the gym and you know they're dying after a workout and everybody's like, hey, good for you, nice workout. And I thought, well, to me, if you're laying on the ground, you're failing. So I said, I wanted to supplement the concept of the strength training with heart rate specific modalities and get them looking at the expenses associated with the efforts. And then we did that in the first round and it did really well. But then I thought, you know, we haven't taken into uh, consideration what the differences in expense would be associated with the particular devices. And the skier being a very popular thing in CrossFit and now in High Rocks, I wanted to see what does it cost you to put out a max effort on the skier? And then what would it cost you to put out a max effort on the rower? And then what would it cost you to put out a max effort on the treadmill and the bike? So I invited these athletes from Invictus to come out because these are well-seasoned, well-respected, 10 years in the sport, been to the games. You know, I want to take some people that really knew the business to get in and let us experiment with them and find out what the differences in costs were. And what a cool experience that was. We started to find what was sustainable effort from a heart rate perspective on the equipment, how to kind of work through this lactic acid buildup. And uh, we use your equipment principally for all of this experimentation. So that was kind of the reason why I wanted to reach out to you because I've got a buttload of questions about technique on the equipment, if you'll indulge me. For sure. And it is interesting because believe it or not, I mean, we, within, so we're big in the Olympic biathlon and, and skiing world. And so this, they use a lot of the skiers, so they're specialists. And then, of course, the rowing, you know, anybody who rows competitively rows on our rowing machine. And that's pretty specific. But we haven't even done the comparison that you've done between the three, um, which I'm going to find super interesting when I start hearing your numbers. because right. I don't even have answers for that. So. Yeah, well, and I tell you, I, I didn't know, because I've done testing on triathletes forever, I've always known that there's generally a big difference between the capacity at threshold on the bike versus running. And I've seen as much as 20, 25 beats per minute difference between those two modalities. And it just occurred to me, I said, well, you know, I wonder what the threshold looks like on the skier. And I'd never done that before. I'd never tested anybody on the skier before. I had tested people years ago on the rower and of course, many, many, many people on the bike, but just not the same yeah. as, uh, as in this circumstance. So it was cool. And you know, you're, you'll get it. I'm, I'm going to send you a copy of the program so you can see what I did. Um, 
it's not going to be released until I think um, I think the 18th or 19th of this month. But it's done, and I'm I'm so proud of how it all shook out. But I want to ask you about. Uh, and I went to your website. And by the way, people listening to this, I highly recommend you go to the Concept Two website and look at the the tutorials that are available there because you guys have outlined a lot of the details that I think are important for people to understand there. But I want to talk about the damper. So whether the damper be on the rower, the bike, or the skier, can you explain the loading pattern and what would be the way to approach it if you're like just new to to dealing with these these uh, devices? Yeah, that that is the biggest question that we've had, you know, from the day that brothers made the first rowing machine, <clears throat> mainly because there's no set number or drag factor for each individual person. It's very, it does vary a lot on size of individual, stroke rating, things like that. But uh, I'll simplify a little bit. First of all, the damper on the machine is basically just a way to either restrict or allow more airflow into the fan cage, into the, into the actual flywheel itself. Um, the slower the flywheel is moving, the more inertia or drag you have to overcome, and that gives you that heavier feel at a higher number. Um, now, because it's a spinning wheel, if you take more strokes, then the wheel is still, stays moving fast, so you won't have as much load on there. So a lot of these people that like, they say, oh, I do better at higher numbers. It's because they typically have a little bit higher stroke rate than they probably should have. Um, they can still get good numbers that way. Um, but uh, everyone's gonna find what works best for them, and the best way to do that is to actually experiment, which I hate to say, most people don't do it. They'll practice Olympic lifts and things like that. But if you ask them to do several different tests of say 1K or 2K at different drag factors, it's really it's like pulling teeth to get people to actually try that. Now with High Rocks, the conversation of late has been in the competition on the skier, they allow you to adjust, I think once. And I guess the other thing was you can't let your feet completely leave the ground. And most of the guys I've been talking to has been saying they felt that they can get to a thousand meters quicker if they set the damper at 10. Would you argue that point? Um, I mean, some guys probably can. Uh, that's a lot of 10 on a skier is a lot of loading. So I would say it'd have to be somebody with really strong shoulders, probably a little bit heavier and really good technique. They could maybe get away with that. I think if they were to look at an actual Nordic skier and the technique that they use, which is going to be a higher turnover at a lower drag factor, they could probably get better. Like I can almost say if you gave me that guy for an afternoon, I probably could get him to beat it at a bit with a, with a faster turnover, making sure that they're not pulling down past the hips um, and that they're, they're using their body weight to help initiate the movement. Um, so the idea of not changing the damper once they set it, that's because the machine actually calibrates between strokes. And if you're getting a certain split and you start messing around with the damper, um, you know, it, it could, it could, it wouldn't be as accurate if you start moving it around. The stipulation we do for world indoor rowing championships is that you can put, can row at any setting you want but once you pick it it stays there for the duration of the race 
And that that's how we get this like pinpoint accuracy on time and split and things like that. So the guys that are setting out to develop a world record on the machine, what kind of damper setting do, you, do, do they seem to find is uh, ideal? Yeah, so this blows people away, but the fastest guys on the ergs rowing on the rowing machine, you know, even these monsters that are heavyweight, you know, almost seven foot tall rowers, they rarely go over a five. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's uh, almost anybody that will fight you to the death saying that they do better at a 10 is leaving so much performance on the table. Um, right. So the idea being, and, and again, I'm looking at it from a standpoint of lactic acid development, is that when you pull at 10 hard to try to pull a thousand meters, even if you're able to accomplish the task, what's left in your body going into the run is going to be, it's going to be tough going, right? I would think so. And I mean, it might also be like, you look at like time and contraction, it's going to be a slower pull at a higher drag factor, which means you're going to be under tension maybe longer as opposed to the nice thing about, well, rower skier is there's a built-in rest to every stroke, um, right. the strokes, which is, you know, there's no resistance, you know, it's different on the bike. And that was a challenge that we had to overcome to make the bike uh, and make it as accurate as the other two pieces of equipment. Um, but yeah, I would, I never really thought about it as far as lactic acid production and you would know better too at a higher stroke rate. You're also, so you're increasing your recovery time. So maybe that's helping filter some faster, but I mean, that's, that's, that's for the doctors, not for me. <laughs> well, what I've been finding through the testing we've done is that the, the threshold comes on sooner from a heart rate perspective uh, on the skier when people approach it, uh, with the attitude that they feel like they should when they're competing. So in other words, you grab the, the handles and you start hammering out the work and your heart rate starts to jump and boom, all of a sudden you're, you're over threshold. And something to be said for the recovery in the phase, you know, where you, you're releasing the load and you're regaining the load, that helps to try to mitigate some of the lactate production. But I think there's a diminishing return. I've been counseling the guys that I coach that are competing now to look at between six, six and a half is what I've been telling them. And they've been fighting me. They're going, oh, no, everybody's telling me to set it on 10 and just go for it. No, you're right. They're not. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, people should be, it's interesting too that, um, you know, the sport of Nordic skiing has been around forever as long as rowing and stuff. And if, you, if, if somebody really wanted to look into this more, if they look at sprint skiing, so like, you know, intervals of a thousand meters and the fact that they take off in a double pole motion and the way their body mechanics work, um, I think that would help a lot of people. But we're so into the gym mentality that people don't realize that this isn't, you know, yes, it's a machine, but it's derived from the movement that's been going on for, you know, hundreds of years. So right. there's a lot more to it than just what we know from the ski erg machine if they actually looked at skiing on there. So. Well, that's how I approached it. Just as a, uh, a complete novice, when I first got mine, I just tried to mimic what I thought it would look like if you were cross-country skiing. That's been my approach. Um, but also, too, it's interesting you say the skier because so much of what we do in the gym is hip opening uh, movements. Is The skier is one of the few cardio endurance metabolic conditioning tools that involves a hip closing. I mean, you're not going to do 30 minutes of ball slams or 
you know, 20 minutes of toes to bar, but you can steer, you know, for a marathon if you want to. It's, it's, mm. it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I know that the, the wall ball exercise in high rocks has been the killer of most of the athletes, you know, to go unbroken for a hundred repetitions is, has been quite the challenge for a lot of guys. When they, when high rocks first came to us and they showed us their layout of their event, I'm like, what mean guy put the wall balls last? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It would actually kill you, especially after rowing your quads are spent, pushing a sled, your quads are spent, you know. Yeah. Are you guys involved from a beyond just a sponsorship relationship? Are do you do you guys are you co-owning the thing? I mean, because it seems like your your involvement is pretty heavy. No, actually, and um we really don't ever do that. Uh, same with CrossFit. It's it's really we're just equipment support. Um and when it, you know, same when Greg Glassman came to us, we look at it and we're like, hey, this looks cool. And the people doing it look awesome. And, you know, this is something that we would enjoy doing ourselves. And then we we just start talking about equipment and what they need and stuff like that. But, um, no, it's uh, it's it's very much just, a, you know, we're in the competition and we think it's a good one. And, and we really wouldn't do it if we didn't think that people were going to buy into it and like it and, and have a like-minded kind of idea of fitness that we do i think it's a monster i think the whole high rocks idea is, is a monster i i think it's going to be something you're going to start seeing a lot more of in this country and and i, I certainly hope that they are able to put on an appreciable amount of events so that everybody gets a chance to to participate because you know i'm writing a program for high rocks and and they're right now we have, I think, uh, two events that are slated to show up in the near term. Well, there's Dallas and there's Los Angeles. And then after that, uh, it's Berlin, correct? I believe so. Um, I know they have more planned um, at some point, you know, in the U.S. And I think they actually looked into some on the East Coast, too. Um, but, yeah, actually, I haven't seen it across my desk yet. So. Yeah, I sure hope they can do it. I, I, I'm assuming that's their plan. I uh, talked to Hunter about it. He's now a sponsored athlete with them. And he told me that they had expressed the, the interest in, in expanding the, the events across the country here. So that's going to be good for everybody. Yeah, and one of the things I do like about it too is that the way that they map out their the layout, it's reproducible. So if you're really into it, you can compare your, you know, your first time you've ever done it to your third time you've ever done it and look to see if you're improving and stuff. Because as long as they're accurate as far as the way they lay out their runs and the distance that all of the you know, other obstacles are there, you can actually compare yourself. There's not a lot of, uh, it's indoors, you, know, you can't say, oh, you know, it was rainy that day or something, so my times were off. You can really look at yourself and say, did I get fitter, did I get better, you know, that kind of yeah, and that's always been a problem, I thought, with uh, the whole Spartan thing. I mean, I get it. It's guttural. You get out there, you're facing the environment, and you're challenging yourself for the most part. But when you, when guys are, you know, when you start talking about a world championship record, and you really can't effectively compare your time to what occurred the, the previous year or the previous five years, because the course changes often. Um now they're looking to relocate the world championships to uh, Abu Dhabi, which is going to be a complete game changer from a standpoint of comparison. And uh, I, I just, it's just not standardized well enough. And I mean, I get kind of why they don't do that, but I like the fact, as you suggested, you could compare your own times over time 
to see whether in fact you're improving or even compare your times to on, on a, uh, a level playing field against the world champion. Yeah, I, I think they're on to something. We were lucky uh, when we did start working with them. Uh, we got them to send us some sleds and some other stuff um, so that, you know, once the snow melts here in Vermont, you know, we plan on doing some training here. And, you know, as the events happen, we'll send different, you know, employees so we can actually test ourselves. We already had some people go through it. So there's already a, a pecking order on the wall of who's trying to be who here at Concept 2. So nice. It, look, it looks, looks fun to me. <laughs> I'd love to come out there and, and perform VO2 tests on guys that are really savvy at the sport. Be fun to find out, set some standards on what heart rate should look like when you're doing the type of work you're doing. Yeah, we're so right, probably about 20 minutes from us. There's a there's a Nordic and rowing center, and we're lucky that a lot of Olympians train out of there. They actually do have a human performance lab 20 minutes from here. And uh, what I'd like to do is get somebody who maybe one of your athletes that's really good on the skier and compare their VO2 and stuff like that to some of these other. Uh, more sports specific uh, athletes and just see how it translates over the three different machines. It'd be, it'd be interesting for me too. So this is kind of a wild question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So between the three pieces of equipment, which one do you think has the potential to develop your VO2 the best, or let's call your cardiovascular fitness the best? Well, I just, I just looked at large muscle groups being used, I would have to still say the rower primarily. Um, just because of the range of motion um, and the fact you're using, you know, quads, glutes, lats, um, probably a little bit more than the skier. Uh, but, you know, the, we haven't really done any testing, so I can't say that for sure. Um, I do know that some of the highest lactates recorded are in rowers. Um, I haven't heard that statement as much from Nordic skiers. So, I really don't know. I would have to probably choose the rower. And uh, if you were to recommend a piece of equipment to someone that's just going to set it up in their, their home for a fitness piece, novice athlete, what would you recommend? For me, it would be between the skier and the rower. And uh, the determining factor I would ask that person is like, like for me, um, skiers my my favorite of the three, um, primarily because I don't like to sit to do my workouts. Um, so, if somebody didn't mind sitting and being on the rower, I would say that you know get that first, and then you know skier second, bike third maybe, um, unless they enjoy cycling, and then you know they mix up that order. Uh, but that's probably pretty much with some of the pro athletes that are really getting into our products. They ask me what to get first. I usually tell them. Uh, rower first, skier second, biker third, but it's amazing that once they try one, the other ones are coming pretty quickly thereafter. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is probably going to be my final question. Curious to know, because I have athletes that I'm coaching around the world that are now starting to employ the skier. They're starting to show up in a lot more gyms, and I have them doing a workout. I refer to it as Jean-Claude. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you're familiar with who Jean-Claude is. Uh, you're not you, old enough? No, yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah, you see Jean-Claude Kelly, right? Oh, yeah, I know, yep. <laughs> yeah, you're older than I thought. <laughs> uh, fan of the sport. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, uh, I named it Jean-Claude, and nobody that I coach knows who the hell he is. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, it's just kind of a spoof on, on uh, the CrossFit names. Uh, I started giving my workouts real, just really weird names, whatever came to me. And so the skier workout that I have him do is a 5K all-out effort, and we call it Jean-Claude. 
And so just for their benefit, what would you consider to be, uh, what's the word I want to use? I want to say highly competitive finish time for a 5K on the skier. Oh, probably around 18, 19 minutes, maybe. Really? Really? I've got one guy doing 20, 20 flat. And he, he, uh, he's new to it. And he, uh, he sent me a message the day after he said, I, I can't use my arms. <laughs> it really kicked his ass. It really, it's so dependent. And here's the crazy thing. So, and so as you know, with rowing stroke, there's a definite advantage to being a taller athlete on the rowing machine based on the length of stroke right. um, and long levers, especially uh, hip to shoulder lever for the hip opening and the leverage you can create for guys like myself who wasn't an on-water rower and i'm built a little stockier um so like 59 195 is built like your typical crossfitter my skier times and rowing times are not that different um and i would say i'm much more competitive on the skier i would think that somebody like like ryan that you work with would be fairly similar that his skier times would be would be as good if not better than his road times but that's just a speculation <laughs> well i'm curious to see i'm going to find out i'm going to i'm going to uh, lay the gauntlet down and tell him i want to see him break 18 minutes yeah it, on our monitors people might know is that there's actually a screen that has projected finish which is an amazing motivator when you throw that gauntlet down because every stroke it's going to change its project, projected finish so you know the big thing is is, is to not go out too hot on any of our pieces of equipment because you blow up so quickly. So when you learn to use that projected finish screen, it allows you to do three or four quick start pulls and then settle into that pace of your projected finish. And then if you have anything at the end of the at the end of the of the time, you can kind of let it go at the end. But um, as you've mentioned before, is that anybody who doesn't know our equipment well who goes into competition chances are they're going to go out too hot and blow up too quick. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, look, Greg, I hope that uh, we'll get a chance to meet each other in, in person. I, I was hoping to be at the LA High Rocks event, but uh, luck would have it. I'm actually going to be in Maryland. I'm doing a clinic in Maryland at that very same weekend. So uh, I'm really kind of disappointed that it turned out that way, but you know. We'll be at the West Coast Classic in Del Mar uh, later this year. That'll be out in California, but um, I'll also be at the CrossFit Games and a couple of other different yeah. events. And uh, I do need to get out to your area in California sometime soon to, to work with some of the other sports that we work with other than the functional fitness side of things. Yeah. Well, uh, again, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. Any recommendations, links someone might want to follow, thoughts about uh, getting access to uh, your goodness? Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the website. So there's, our website has just oodles of information uh, from if you have someone who maybe has access to our equipment already and they just want to learn more, uh, there's a whole section that's called Damper Setting 101. And so that would kind of go in more depth on what we started to talk about. Um, also, there's videos on technique that are really good on there, even some common mistakes that people might be making. And if you hear this and you don't have access to our equipment, we have a rower finder and a skier finder on our website. So you can put in your zip code. It'll tell you the gyms in your area that have them. Um, and a lot of times, if you just want to try the piece of equipment, if you call the gym and say, hey, listen, 
I just want to try this piece of concept to equipment. Um, you know, they'll let you do it. One thing you have to be aware of though, is our equipment lasts a very long time. So the piece of equipment you might be trying in a gym could be 10 years old versus something that was you know, made yesterday or something like that. Yeah. And does that matter? It doesn't as far as accuracy, but as far as how people maintain our equipment, it's, it can vary. It can look pristine, you know, 20 years later, it could be a gym where they don't clean the machines and you've got chalk jam and then the buttons and, you know, yeah. got 10 years of sweat on the monorail with bumpy seat rollers or something. Yeah, I, I could tell you that I, I'm quite familiar with what it, can, what it can do if you don't take care of the rails on your rower. That's a lot of uh, dust and sweat and compressed by the seat rollers. The nice thing is if, you know, a little bit of Windex and, and it might be gross, but even in a sweaty t-shirt after your workout, if you wipe it down, it comes right off, which is nice. Yeah, well, I, I have a tendency, I'm kind of meticulous about it because I know what it can do. It can pit the rollers and just the whole sensation of, uh, of sliding back and forth gets to be really annoying. So I, I, I clean mine with uh, a degreaser I use for my bike. And, and I clean those rails almost every time we get on them. It's funny, at the affiliate that I train out of, you know, if we have a lot of rowing, I'm the same way. I mean, actually, when I first started here, I was actually a test rower. Part of my job was test rowing each individual rowing machine. So I'm very anal about smoothness. And before a workout, I'll even clean it before I even do a workout, uh, even though if it's a, a short interval workout or something like that, because the bumping would annoy me. And of course, everybody else, thinks that I'm cheating or somehow making it easier. And I'm like, you're perfectly welcome to clean your own monorail. If you want. <laughs> All right. Well, look, Greg, thank you so much again. And uh, I look forward to meeting you one day soon. Yeah, hopefully we'll do it again. All right, buddy. Take care. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.